is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Ukraine's president delivering a powerful and emotional address to the U.S. Congress pleading for more help to save his country from Russian troops, calling for President Biden to be the leader of peace. We'll play you President Zelensky's address coming up and head to Ukraine after that for reaction. After the address, President Biden promising $800 million more in security aid to Ukraine, but has so far rejected calls to impose a no-fly zone. Now, will that change following Zelensky's impactful address? We'll go to uh, talk more about peace talks between Russia and Ukraine, which seem to be going well right now. At least that's what they're saying. So we will go in-depth into the war in Ukraine. COVID cases up again in Europe and in China. Big cities are locking down again. We'll look into whether this means the U.S. is in for another spike after just finishing up the last surge. And cheaters beware a university professor in Orange County going to courts to find out who cheated on his tests. We start, though, uh, with the war in Ukraine. Journalist Phil Littner is back with us. Uh, he is in Lviv right now in the western portion of Ukraine. Phil, thanks for being Back with us. So uh, President Biden has uh, actually said for the first time just a few minutes ago uh, that Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia, is a war criminal. Uh, Other than that that declaration, I'm not quite sure it changes the situation on the ground at all, does it? Well, probably not. It may affect the negotiations that you mentioned earlier. But uh, as far as the strategic and the military situation on the ground here, it's unlikely to change, but it's interesting that uh, President Biden would make that statement on the same day that we learned that a representative from the International Criminal Court in The Hague was actually here on the ground and has begun an investigation. We mentioned also the aid package, more than $800 million, uh, more air defenses, uh, more anti-tank defenses. The no-fly zone is still a no-go. The jets are still a no-go. How fast is some of that stuff making its way into Ukraine if at all, because we keep mentioning every week, more support's coming in, more support's coming in. I mean, do we know if it actually is is getting there? Yes. Yes, we do, actually. Um, I have seen uh, photographic evidence uh, repeatedly, uh, uh, stuff that's being put out by the Ukrainians, of course, but also just people on the ground here that I know um, going through checkpoints. And uh, I have seen what are called these in-laws, these uh, anti-tank weaponry uh, that is being sent in by the the thousands by various NATO member states. So that is actually physically on the ground here. Uh, We are told that more drones are being brought in. But yes, uh, from President Zelensky's speech uh, to Congress, we we did hear him asking for jets, but also asking for more anti-aircraft weaponry, in particular the S-300 anti-aircraft weapon system and uh, something that uh, the Russians have said, if that gets sent in here, it will um, be seen as a serious escalation. Okay, so the U.S., uh, Great Britain today, NATO consistently no to a no-fly zone. That being said, if the Ukrainians get enough of the right equipment, could they, on their own, in in your view, create a de facto no-fly zone over their country? Well... I'll tread delicately here because uh, you're asking me to look into a crystal ball. However, having said that, um, the there is clearly a battle for the skies happening here in Ukraine. Over the weekend, we saw that uh, heavy attack at the airfield and the training base just outside of 
where I am in Lviv here, we heard the air raid, air raid sirens as a result. But, you know, the Russians attacking with cruise missiles to an airfield, well, you don't do that unless you're concerned about Ukrainian air power. Now, we're, we're, you know, we're into well into our third week of war here, and if the Russians are still struggling to keep the Ukrainians from having any kind of uh, accessibility to air power, it, it just shows that uh, they don't have air dominance. What in these peace talks is showing the most promise right now? Well, you know, reading the tea leaves and some of the things that the negotiators and uh, in particular Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov has said, it, it looks as though the, the, the thing that folks are most hopeful for uh, on, on, in the negotiating teams is a, a new stated position of neutrality that would allow the Russians to not fear that uh, uh, border that they share with Ukraine being utilized by a NATO-friendly uh, state. Uh, it's been floated the idea of maybe turning it into kind of an Austria uh, situation, which is not a, a NATO member state, but of course is is, is um, you know a European uh, state, uh, independent and on its own. So that looks like it's something where progress is being made. However, at the end of the day, we're still talking about territory here, and the Russians have seen seized an awful lot of it, um, both now and back in 2014, that the Ukrainians want to see returned to them. Journalist Phil Itner back with us from Lviv. Phil, thanks. Right now, we are going to play Ukraine President Zelensky's address to Congress this morning for you. He was introduced by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi. Madam Speaker, members of the Congress, ladies and gentlemen, Americans, friends, I am proud to greet you from Ukraine, from our capital city of Kiev, a city that is under missile and airstrikes from Russian troops every day, but it doesn't give up. And we have not even thought about it for a second. Just like many other cities and communities in our beautiful country, which found themselves in the worst war since World War II. I have the honor to greet you on behalf of the Ukrainian people, brave, and freedom-loving people who for eight years have been resisting the Russian aggression. Those who give their best sons and daughters to stop this full-scale Russian invasion. Right now, the destiny of our country is being decided. The destiny of our people whether Ukrainians will be free, whether they will be able to preserve their democracy. Russia has attacked not just us, not just our land, not just our cities. It went on a brutal offensive against our values, basic human values. It threw tanks and planes against our freedom, against our right to live freely in our own country, choosing our own future against our desire for happiness, against our national dreams, just like the same dreams you have, you Americans, just like anyone else in the United States. I remember your national memorial in Rushmore. 
the faces of your prominent presidents, those who laid the foundation of the United States of America as it is today, democracy, independence, freedom, and care for everyone, for every person, for everyone who works diligently, who lives honestly, who respects the law. We in Ukraine want the same for our people. All that is normal part of your own life. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, Americans, in your great history, you have pages that would allow you to understand Ukrainians, understand us now, when you need it right now, when we need you right now. Remember Pearl Harbor, terrible morning of December 7, 1941, when your sky was black from the planes attacking you. Just remember it. Remember September the 11th. A terrible day in 20, 2001 when evil tried to turn your cities, independent territories in battlefields, when innocent people were attacked, attacked from air. Yes, just like nobody else expected it. You could not stop it. Our country experience the same every day, right now, at this moment, every night, for three weeks now. Various Ukrainian cities, Odessa and Kharkiv, Chernihiv and Sumy, Zhytomyr and Lviv, Mariupol and Dnipro, Russia has turned the Ukrainian sky into a source of death for thousands of people. Russian troops, have already fired nearly 1,000 missiles at Ukraine. Countless bombs, they use drones to kill us with precision. This is a terror that Europe has not seen, has not seen for 80 years, and we are asking for a reply, for an answer uh, to this uh, terror from the whole world. Is this a lot to ask for, to create a no-fly zone, zone over Ukraine to save people? Is this too much to ask? Humanitarian no-fly zone, something that Ukraine, uh, that Russia would not be able to terrorize our free cities. If this is too much to ask, we offer an alternative. You know what kind of defense systems we need, S-300 and other similar systems. You know how much depends on the battlefield, on the ability to use aircraft, powerful, strong air uh, aviation to protect our people, our freedom, our land, aircraft that can help Ukraine, help Europe. And you know that they exist and you have them, but they are on earth, not in, Ukraine, in the Ukrainian sky. They do not defend our people. I have a dream. These words are known to each of you today. I can say, I have a need. I need to protect uh, our sky. I need your decision, your help, which means exactly the same, the same you feel when you hear the words, I have a dream. Ladies and gentlemen, friends, Ukraine is grateful to the United States for its overwhelming support for everything that your government and your people have done for us, for weapons 
and ammunition for training, for finances, for leadership in the free world, which helps us to pressure the aggressor economically. I am grateful to President Biden for his personal involvement, for his sincere commitment to the defense of Ukraine and democracy all over the world. I am grateful to you for the resolution which recognizes all those who commit crimes against Ukraine, against the Ukrainian people as war criminals. However, now, it is true, in the darkest time for our country, for the whole Europe, I call on you to do more. New packages of sanctions are needed constantly, every week, until the Russian military machine stops. Restrictions are needed for everyone on whom this unjust regime is based. We propose that the United States sanctions all politicians in the Russian Federation who remain in their offices and do not uh, uh, cut ties with those who are responsible for the aggression against Ukraine. From state Duma's members to the last official who has lack of morale to break the state terror. All Americans company must leave Russia from their market, leave their market immediately because it is flooded with our blood. Ladies and gentlemen, members of Congress, please take the lead. If you have companies in your districts who um, finance the Russian military machine leaving business in Russia, you should put pressure. I'm asking to make sure that the Russians do not receive a single penny that they use to destroy people in Ukraine. The destruction of our country, the destruction of Europe. All American ports should be closed for uh, Russian goods. We are um, Peace is more important than income, and we have to defend this principle in the whole world. We already became part of the anti-war coalition, a big anti-war coalition that unites many countries, dozens of countries, those who reacted to, in principle, to President Putin's decision to invade our country. But we need to move on and do more. We need to create new tools to respond quickly and stop the war, the full-scale Russian invasion of Ukraine, which began on February 24th. And it would be fair if it ended in a day, in 24 hours, that evil would be punished immediately. Today, the world does not have such tools the war of the past have prompted our predecessors to create institutions that should protect us from war. But they unfortunately don't work. We see it, you see it. So we need new ones, new institutions, new alliances, and we offer them. We propose to create an association, U24, United for Peace, a union of responsible countries that have the strength and cons consciousness to stop conflicts immediately, provide all the necessary assistance in 24 hours, if necessary, even weapons, if necessary, sanctions, humanitarian support, political support, finances, everything you need to keep the peace and quickly save the world to save lives. 
In addition, such associations, such union could provide assistance to those who are experiencing natural disasters, man-made disasters, who fell victims to humanitarian crisis or epidemics. Remember how difficult it was for the world to do the simplest thing, just to give vaccines, vaccines against COVID to save lives, to prevent new strains. The world spent months, years doing things like that much faster to make sure there are no human losses, no victims. Ladies and gentlemen, Americans, if such alliance would exist today, that is U24, we would be able to save thousands of lives in our country. In many countries of the world, those who need peace, those who suffer inhumane destruction. I ask you to watch one video, video of what the Russian troops did in our country, in our land. We have to stop it. We must prevent it, preventively destroy every single aggressor who seeks to subjugate other nations. Please watch the video. So Zelensky, uh, President Zelensky, uh, through a translator there, the video played to Congress. Um, we were talking about on the air today, numerous graphic images from the war, badly injured civilians, uh, children being rushed to safety. Uh, President Zelensky then came out of the video speaking English, uh, the final part of his speech, uh, asking for help. And in the end, to sum it up, today... Today, it's not enough to be the leader of the nation. Today, it takes to be the leader of the world. Being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Peace in your country doesn't depend anymore only on you and your people. It depends on those next to you, on those who are strong. Strong doesn't mean weak. Strong is brave and ready to fight for the life of his citizens and citizens of the world. For human rights, for freedom, for the right to live decently and to die when your time comes. And not when it's wanted by someone else, by your neighbor. Today, the Ukrainian people are defending not only Ukraine, we are fighting for the values of Europe and the world, sacrificing our lives in the name of the future. That's why today the American people are helping not just Ukraine, but Europe and the world to keep the planet alive, to keep justice in history. Now I'm almost 45 years old. Today my age stopped when the hearts of more than 100 children stopped beating. I see no sense in life if it cannot stop the death. And this is my main mission as the leader of my people, great Ukrainians. And as the leader of my nation, I'm addressing the President Biden. You are the leader of the nation, of your great nation. I wish you to be the leader of the world. 
being the leader of the world means to be the leader of peace. Thank you. Slava Ukraine. Glory to Ukraine. Zelensky then got a standing ovation from Congress. Some lawmakers say they were moved by the address, calling it very powerful. But what do people in Ukraine think? Are they hopeful even more help is on the way? With us now is Victor. He is from Kiev. That's the capital city, of course, of Ukraine, but has left the city to escape the Russian attacks and is now in the western part of Ukraine. Victor, thank you for being with us. Uh, you've listened to uh, the speech the virtual speech that uh, your president gave today uh, to the U.S. Congress. Uh, do you have some thoughts on it? Yeah, well, first first of all, thank you very much for reaching out, because I think the American people should know the truth. And, well, basically, I support every single word that our president said during that speech, because we we're truly fighting not just for our own country and our own freedom, but for the entire democratic world. So uh, we really need support and whatever help we can get from all of our allies around the world because we're fighting a very powerful enemy and uh, we are thankful for whatever help we can receive. Do you think enough help is coming through? I mean, there's obviously other things that are being called for, but those come along with, with their own kind of complications. Well, yes, uh, we've already received some weapons and uh, financial support from the U.S., but the biggest threat that is uh, take, that is currently in Ukraine is from the skies because the Russians, they're shooting missiles into the cities, and this is the biggest battle that we're currently losing. So that's why we're asking all of our allies to close the sky to make sure that we are protecting from the sky because everywhere else we're our army is doing a wonderful job. Tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Victor. How old are you? What do you do in, in Ukraine? And, and uh, what's your future plan? Well, I'm 25 years old. Uh, I'm, I was working in the finance industry, but now I don't currently have a job because a lot of the companies had to close due to martial law and taking place. Uh, so basically right now I'm just deciding what to do next. Uh, currently, uh, my full-time job is basically, uh, volunteering. I help fundraise for the army because this is our main priority right now that all of our guys have everything they need. So all of their needs are covered. Uh, plus I'm also helping, uh, by the Russian propaganda. So I'm trying to report all the different websites that are just uh, saying false and just some false statements in terms of Ukraine. Uh, and also I'm trying to support our cyber forces as well. So this is what I'm doing right now. Take us through some of that some more in some more detail. How are you trying to fundraise and, and who are you getting the money to? And then, uh, you know, when you go through and you, you tag all these posts and you do, because it, it strikes us that every single person that we've talked to is doing something, whether it's carrying supplies in or trying to go closer to the border and get some stuff or humanitarian convoys. I mean, everybody is playing a part. Everyone that's come on the air has a different kind of thing that they're doing. Exactly. We are as united today as ever. I mean, there was no politician in our entire history that could unite our country uh, right now because we all have our own uh, 
views about different things in normal life, but right now we just have one objective, is to win. Because uh, if Russia stops this war, there will be no more war. If Ukraine stops fighting, there will be no more Ukraine. I just want to make this clear. So in terms of uh, my support, what I'm doing is I have a bunch of uh, friends on Facebook, and I just posted uh, the official uh, uh, military accounts for our army. There is an account of a National Bank of Ukraine that, uh, that you can transfer the money into it, and uh, it will buy all of the supplies uh, for our army. So, And I actually used to live in the States 10 years ago as an exchange student, so I have a lot of American friends on Facebook, and I just reached out to all of them, asking them for help, because this is what our country needs now. And I've been doing this uh, pretty much all, all those days so far. Victor, what about your family? Uh, yes. Yeah, so basically, uh, I was born in Kiev, and I lived there, but uh, we had to move to western Ukraine because I worry about the safety of my relatives. So that's why we decided to move. But who's with you uh, now? I mean, are you with uh, who? How many members of your family? Yeah. So basically, I'm I'm here with my grandma, my mom, and my aunt. And what were things like in Kiev at the time that you left? So we left two days ago. Uh, we were there uh, all this time before that. And so we decided to leave when we started hearing uh, bombings uh, that were pretty close to our apartment. And since uh, uh, it's really not safe to stay there, and uh, my, my current job is helping army, and I can do this pretty much from everywhere, and I was very concerned about the safety of my relatives, uh, we decided to moved temporarily uh, into the west of Ukraine. How old is your grandma? Uh, my grandma is 75. She's five years old. Okay, so she's lived through a lot in her life. How is she taking this? Well, she worries a lot because uh, this is a very stressful time for all of us, especially for her. Uh, but uh, she's still staying strong and uh, just hoping that this ends soon and we win. What is it like to have to pick up from, you know, the city you were born in, the city you know, and then just kind of move to a different part of your country, not knowing how long you're going to be there or what things are going to be like if you can go back to, to where home is? Well, uh, honestly, it's difficult. It took hours to get to where we are now. Usually it takes about five, so it's almost three times as long. And... Um, you know, we, we're living in this uncertainty right now, and, and it's pretty difficult, but uh, we're not panicking. We're staying strong because uh, panicking doesn't help at all, and we're just trying to do whatever we can to help out our guys, and hopefully this will end soon, and, and we will be celebrating our victory because everybody in Ukraine believes that uh, we can fight back and defend our own land. As I'm sure you know, something like, I don't know, three million more of uh, Ukrainians uh, have left the country. Uh, Poland, uh, you know, points points west from there. We've spoken with people who are in Greece and in Spain. Have you and your family discussed moving 
even temporarily, out of Ukraine, or have you decided to stay, and why? Well, we're obviously we're talking about this uh, because we know we don't know whether Western Ukraine will be safe one week or two weeks from now, because uh, you know uh, this war is just unpredictable. Uh, so uh, this might be a possibility, especially because of Grandma. Uh, because she's pretty old, and we worry about her health um, and all that kind of stuff. So this is not out of the question. We started off talking to you about the speech your president gave. How much does it mean to, to people that he has stayed put when he's been given options to, to get out of town, to get to maybe where you are, somewhere safer than Kiev, but he's stayed exactly where he is? Well... Uh, first of all, we need to understand that Kiev is a strategic place for our enemy, and they will be doing pretty much anything they can to uh, just uh, kill more civilians and just push harder. But when it comes to Zelensky, obviously he is the president. He has uh, his own bodyguards, and uh, his well, uh, his security is taking care of his safety. When it comes to us, we don't have private uh, bodyguards and nothing of that sort, and we can't really protect ourselves from missiles. That's why we've made this decision to go to Western Ukraine for now, and this was mainly done because of my concern for the safety of my relatives. Victor, you didn't uh, grow up in the military, right? And and you, you so you don't have that background. Uh, and a month ago, you were going about your business, I suspect, doing what you were doing, your job, and being with your your family. What has changed in you? Where are you drawing? You are getting your strength from to deal with a situation that you never could have actually anticipated. Yeah, obviously, I have no military experience whatsoever. I've never fired a gun in my life. So uh, on a, um, it is a difficult time, but, you know, uh, we're just, we are Ukrainians. We're really strong. Uh, to be honest, this is uh, t- today, those 20 last days were probably uh, the first days when I really felt proud to be Ukrainian because the amount of resistance that we're showing right now, our army, like all of the people, like everybody is involved in something. Like uh, women are making sandwiches for soldiers. Uh, everybody is helping out however they can. Uh, I knew myself that uh, I'm not, not a good soldier since I don't have any experience and I might be useful better in some other ways. And that's how I'm uh, uh, providing support right now. And honestly, our lives have been completely disrupted by this war in the most negative way possible, because we even had to move out of the city for now. And so we're just, you know, staying strong and because we're strong, we're a strong nation and everybody uh, is doing their job uh, for the victory, basically, because this is our main objective right now. Victor, thank you so much for talking to us. Uh, Victor there from Kiev, but again in the western part of the country, and as you've heard, doing multiple things to do his part, everybody doing what they can. Uh, Victor, again, thank you, and, and all the best from us to you and the family. 
This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Ukraine President Zelensky's emotional address to Congress seems to have sparked talk among lawmakers of supporting a no-fly zone over Ukraine, but it's something the White House has rejected so far because it could mean the start of a major war between uh, the U.S., NATO, and Russia. The U.S. is still helping Ukraine, even if it won't impose the no-fly zone. The president announcing an extra $800 million in security assistance to Ukraine. Includes things like anti-aircraft systems. Is there anything else that Congress and the White House are willing to do? Alex Ward, Politico's national security reporter, anchor of National Security Daily. Alex, thanks for being here. So when it comes to that no-fly zone talk, again, White House is firm saying it's not going to happen. The NATO leader was on TV today saying it's not going to happen. There is some more chatter after the speech today among some members of Congress, but I think what the majority of them are still saying uh, this is not a possibility. That's right. A bunch of Republicans as well. And currently in the Senate, I mean, it's a, it's a you know DOA idea. So this isn't probably going. Sorry, this isn't going to happen. President Biden is unlikely to let this happen. Of course, the situation could change. Things could happen on the ground. But for the moment, the most they're willing to do is provide a substantial amount of military assistance, including today sending 100 switchblade drones over to the Ukrainians. Yeah, you know, and in the beginning of the show, we were talking with a reporter in uh, Ukraine, and, and I raised the question, and I'll, I'll ask you the same thing, whether there is some thinking perhaps in Washington that, you know, there are no-fly zones and then there are no-fly zones. Uh, could, by giving the right equipment to the Ukrainians, they, in effect, create a de facto no-fly zone? Well, the drones, the 100 switchblade drones are not going to patrol the skies. They're, they're basically mortars. They're, you know, smart mortars that you can fly up and, and, and fly back down to, towards a tank and, and destroy it. So there's no, you know, predator-type drone that we're providing, as far as I know, uh, at the moment that could, you know, patrol those skies. So, but look, it's, we're three weeks in, and the Russians still don't control the skies over Ukraine. And that's in large part because of the anti-aircraft systems that the West has been providing Ukraine. So... In Washington's mind and in Brussels' mind, there's no reason to even consider no-fly zone because that would just escalate the conflict when uh, there's no need, especially when they, the Ukrainians are having so much success denying the Russians their superiority. Do we know how fast some of this uh, assistance is going to make its way over? Again, our report earlier was saying it, what has been promised already is showing up. It is there. You can see it in pictures. He gets it from his sources. But in terms of the new stuff, what's the lead time on that? Well, they've been remarkably fast. From in the past, you know, some announcements were made and equipment arrived within days, even even hours. So I would suspect a lot of this stuff is probably making its way over the border in Ukraine as we speak, uh, and perhaps more coming in the days ahead. Uh, this could be very, very fast. Of course, it depends where exactly a lot of these weapons are coming from, and you know whether they still need to make some negotiations with European allies who might be providing a lot of this, you know, helmets and ammunition or what it may be. But this can be done very fast, very quickly. Well, and, and of course, as I'm sure you know, uh, Vladimir Putin has said already that uh, the transportation of, of uh, weapons from the West to Ukraine in and of itself would, be, would make them targets. So is there a lot of concern or any concern in Congress that I, I presume that these weapons are coming through Poland or other NATO countries? If that's the case, or is there a concern that that in and of itself could escalate this? Yeah, mostly, uh, as you mentioned, Poland and Romania. Uh, look, there was already the missile strike out near Poland, uh, although it was in Ukraine, uh, towards the training center. So it's not impossible that the Russians are interested in hitting convoys 
uh, of, of deliveries that are coming through, again, you know, the Polish-Ukrainian border, the Romanian-Ukrainian border. Uh, but that's why everyone's quite quiet about where these weapons are getting in and how they're getting in, uh, because no one, you know, they don't want it to be a target. Uh, but it is very possible that the Russians are considering escalating the conflict by hitting these convoys. It's a threat that made not only recently, but really since the start of this conflict. So it's been a concern, but clearly, you know, the U.S. and the West are not deterred. They're going to keep providing the weaponry even in the face of that threat. Yeah, there's making threats, then there's the ability to actually do things. There were reports earlier this week actually putting a number of days on, on how long the Russians could go without a whole bunch of resupplies. They're running out of foods. That's why they asked China for all the MREs. What do we know about the status of, of the force that they've got in there? Well, there's a lot of them. <laughs> it's, it's almost the entirety of all the troops that the Russians pre-staged outside of Ukraine but before the invasion started. And we know that they really only had enough equipment and, and logistics and food and, and medicine for about a two to three week or so operation. Uh, as we were even reported today, there was a State Department cable that mentioned there was a cache of uniforms that were expected, uh, Russian uniforms that were expected to be used for a victory parade uh, that the Ukrainians found in Western Ukraine, indicating that they, the Russians really thought this would be a fast mission. Uh, clearly that's not the case now. Usually in wars like this, roughly around the three-week mark, you see uh, a fighting force stop and resupply and, and get its logistics right. That's where we are now, and, and people I'm talking to are saying part of the reason the Russians are you know, stopped or stalled is, of course, the Ukrainian resistance, but also that they are trying to figure out their logistics and their resupply and get more material. So this is a bit, maybe a strategic pause in the Russian, uh, on the Russian side. And we might see an advance ahead where they might have more of the stuff that they need. You know, and looking at the images of the speech this morning, the virtual address from Zelensky to, to members of Congress, Republicans, Democrats together, it, it appearing to be very, very unified. Uh, anyone guessing in Washington how many more seconds that unification is going to last for? Uh, I, I expect it to last for quite some time, uh, namely because, you know, it's a, there's a, a belief that Ukraine is, worth fighting for and worth supporting, but um, cracks are starting to show, of course, in the way that uh, people are talking about. Alex Ward there, Politico's National Security Reporter, anchor of National Security Daily. Alex, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. While COVID cases are on the decline here in Southern California and much of the U.S., Europe and China now dealing with surges. It seems the worst is far from over as the Omicron subvariant BA2 takes a stronger hold. With us is Dr. Eric Feigolding, epidemiologist and health economist. He's a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists and just wrote an article about this current surge in China. Doctor, thanks for being back with us. So uh, just when people thought that the Omicron variant was over and done, along comes the BA2, which I I take it you think should have its own special Greek letter. Uh, And what should we expect? Yeah, thanks for having me. I think BA2 is really worrisome because it's driving another surge in Europe, and it's also responsible for the surge in in China and Asia. But it's more than just that, because Europe... um, they already recently had an Omicron surge in December and January, just like we did. Yet their cases are rebounding across England, Germany, Austria, France. Like their cases are going up despite such a recent situation and hospitalizations are rising for two or three consecutive weeks as well. Once they're past 50 percent 
uh, BA2. And the other thing in, in Asia is I know some people, you know, why should I care is China basically has about 90, 100 million people in some form of full lockdown or partial lockdown. And that includes all the factories in Shenzhen that makes our iPhones and and all these other uh, products that we uh, we know about. Uh, basically, their cities, Shenzhen is completely shut down and their ports are also closed. So in terms of supply chains and things of consumer goods, those if, if this thing gets really bad and is gets extended, it could really affect us in our pocketbooks. So there's more than one reason to care about this BA2 search. China has been trying to hold on to the, the zero COVID policy, which is just really not workable when we're dealing with something like Omicron, right? And then their vaccines are not up to the same level that, that ours are. Yeah, Omicron obviously has been the monkey wrench because Omicron is just so, so in, uh, penetrant and in, infectious that uh, their strategies are kind of failing, but they're tr- trying to hold on. But this is where they're on this, you know, I call it a tipping point. They either hold on for dear life and keep it under control, or they're going to have some runaway mortality situation like in Hong Kong, where Hong Kong is so bad right now, it's two or three times the uh, worse than any other country. Um, it's approaching New York City in 2020 in Hong Kong right now. That's how bad it is. And and again, there a lot of the elderly are not vaccinated like we are. And the, some of their Chinese vaccines are, are pretty weak. So altogether, you know, if it has a runaway situation, it's going to hit us here. Even if we think that we're more immune, it's going to hit us in our pocketbooks and our, our consumer goods uh, if if this thing drags out. Okay, and, but 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 let's let's center for a moment now on the medical thing because you're right yeah. to worry about, and I think people should worry about the economic impact. But uh, you and I both know that people are, are probably more worried at this point when they hear about a another variant or a subvariant mm-hmm. uh, about uh, medical issues. Uh, will this? Uh, and it does seem as if the BA two variant is is taking somewhat hold in the U.S. because they're finding it, I think, more and more in wastewater all over the U.S. Right. Right. Uh, um, will it, in your view, end up being, as we keep hearing, you know, uh, uh, a pandemic of the un- primarily of the unvaccinated? Do vaccinated and boosted people have much to fear about BA2? So I would say that if you're boosted, you're much better protected. A booster, uh, a third shot booster especially, protects you about with 90 to 95 percent efficacy against hospitalization. So that's really good. Uh, the issue is only a third of Americans are boosted, and also boosters slightly wane over time as well. Like um, a booster protects you seven percent against infection, but over, after ten weeks, only forty-five percent against infection. And two shots is just like in the teens and twenties in terms of protection against infection. It's just too low. Um, and uh, but in two shots, about 75% against hospitalization, which is good, but not that great. So I want to just emphasize that enough enough people are boosted. And I think if you're not boosted, you're still running a very high risk in my book. And you may think that you are previously infected with the Omicron and somehow have some super immunity. You don't because BA2 is different from BA1. You know, the protection of, of against BA2 from BA1 is much lower than you think. And just look at what's happening in England. 
cases are soaring and hospitalizations are soaring across the country, across all age groups. And they just had a huge Omicron wave just like us. So I would emphasize not just boost it, but get a HEPA filter or build a, yourself a Corsi box, an air filter box. And of course, wear masks wherever you can. Um, but really just focus on air quality, disinfection. And, you know, I think that shouldn't be controversial or partisan because, you know, ventilating and opening, the, getting fresh air, using a HEPA, a HEPA filter, uh, or if you can't afford a Corsi box is really, really the best other third rail that we've been kind of ignoring. And that will really protect you and your family. All right. Dr. Eric uh, Feigelding, epidemiologist, uh, health economist. Thanks. Well, cheating in school is about as old as, I don't know, school. Students have found all kinds of creative ways to cheat on tests over the decades, probably over the centuries. Teachers and professors are always playing catch-up. Now we have the Internet, so it's a new dimension. A professor at Chapman University, David Berkowitz, is fed up with it so much he's suing in federal courts because he thinks one or more of his students was trying to cheat on a couple of tests last year. With us is attorney uh, Mark Hankin, represents the professor, and David Redinger, president emeritus of the International Center for Academic Integrity. Thanks to you both. Mark, let's start with you. Uh, first off, a quick refresher, lay out the, the case for us here. Absolutely. So copyright exists the moment something is fixed in a medium. So when Dr. Dr. Berkowitz wrote his exams, he had a copyright in them. That doesn't mean he gives copyright notice. But in fact, on his exams, he did put, do not copy, do not share your, this exam or your exam answers with anyone, do not go on the internet. So it was very clear that there was a, that in addition to a copyright notice. In the United States, you don't need to file for a copyright application unless you want to sue to enforce you can only sue in federal court because copyrights are in the United States Constitution, and therefore there's federal preemption. As a result, we had to sue in federal court. And to do that, you must have filed for a copyright registration certificate and either obtain it or be rejected. In this case, we obtained two copyright registration certificates, one for the midterm exam, one for the final exam. But the and professor, but, but let me interrupt, but the, the, the professor thinks what? That, that students did what with the, the exam? Somebody put it online, right? Is that it? Sure. So Course Hero is a place where you can get tutoring, have help with students working with each other. But in this case, you can ask Course Hero to have someone answer your questions for you. And then people will send back written, professionally written exam answers, which is what happened here. It looks like one or more students in Professor Berkowitz's class did exactly that. The exam was offered at multiple times during the day. So one could have gotten the exam questions earlier and then answered it in a later time period after having gotten the answer. And Coursera would not give us the information without a subpoena. So that's why we had it. Okay, so somebody posted the exam prompts. They wanted the answers and it's all the copyrighted material. So they're not supposed to do that. Are you looking for whoever put them on Coursera? Are you looking for whoever used the answers or both? All of the above. We we filed a lawsuit against unnamed students. We don't know the names of the students, and we don't know whether it's one or more than one. But what we do know is that these courses are graded on a curve. So anytime a student cheats and gets an artificially high grade, it's not just immoral and unethical. In fact, they're hurting their fellow students, many of whom are on scholarship and could lose their scholarship if they don't maintain a certain GPA. So by somebody bumping themselves to the head of the curve, they're actually suppressing their classmates' grades artificially. And that's what upset Dr. Berkowitz. Okay, David, uh, let's bring you into this. Uh, Some people may think that's kind of a nuclear option to sue students because, as I think we said at the outset of this particular segment, uh, there's been cheating of all 
forms, uh, probably as long as there have been students. So uh, do you think that this is a good strategy? Well, I'm no lawyer. And so if, if, if our legal experts tell us that this is the only recourse, then I'm loath to argue with them. I mean, it is a, it is a nuclear option, and it's certainly going to create some, a chilling effect in the classroom in terms of how the community of learning is going on. Having said that, the community of learning was really not damaged initially by the professor. It was damaged initially by the students who were using this software or the, the websites to, to essentially, not essentially, to cheat. Um, I, I mean, the big problem here, when we look at it, when we zoom out from this one classroom at Chapman to the country and the world, is we call this contract cheating. And it's absolutely um, skyrocketed in the last few years. Uh, fueled by the pandemic and by the easy access to uh, anonymous Internet connections. And so the bigger problem here really is, can we trust the work that students provide us? It's so easy to get it through these large publicly held companies. Um, it's really a th an existential threat to higher education around the world. Well, right. This is not the only website. I mean, there's others out there, too, correct, that you can actually send in your own uh, essay assignment or your book reviewed. Let's pick high school, right? Did you read the book? Or, yeah, or well, whatever. Your... And they, they'll write you your essay and that's, so they can make a little money, these essay writer people. And then uh, you give it to your teacher. And then, oh, uh, no, they're, they're yeah. tutoring you. They're not writing your homework answers for you. Um, pardon my sarcasm. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah, yes. Um, Just a little yes. help along this, the way. These are contract cheating providers. Some of them are large publicly held companies here in the United States. Others of them are small entrepreneurs all around the world. Um, ABC News did a really um, interesting expose about the uh, Kenyan contract cheating uh, industry, which is mostly small, small timers. But yeah, and this is actually illegal, criminally illegal in a number of states, as well as being, um, as is being argued here, of a copyright violation. So I mean, if you want to talk about the damage that's done, um, somebody is paying student loans for and subsidizing these loans. You and I, the taxpayers, are subsidizing the loans of students who are actually circumventing the educational experiences that um, that we as a society are paying for. It's a huge challenge. Having said that, I'm you know, as an educator, my goal, of course, is always to try to help students avoid doing these things. Um, prevention is always much better than punishment. But, of course, once it's happened, prevention is no longer an option. Right. David Redinger, a professor emeritus, International Center for Academic Integrity, and then Mark Hainkin representing the professor that's uh, filed suit against John Doe, or Doe's, the cheaters in class. The cheaters, yeah. All right. Uh, that's in-depth for today. Back tomorrow.